Hello, hello. It's your old buddy CH here for another episode of Plus One. And with me is Katie Sikama. Hi, Katie. Hello. So, Katie, thank you for doing this. We had a conversation on uh, LinkedIn about the strikes, and you have a great background to talk about what's going on with, with the strikes in Hollywood and how they might uh, impact the games industry. Could you tell the folks about your background? Sure thing. So for 15 years, I was a business representative at SAG-AFTRA. I started in the TV and theatrical department, signing feature films, everything from shortened student films up to major Hollywood tentpole films and franchises. Then about six years ago, I shifted gears and started working on the interactive agreement, which was right during the 2016 to 2017 strike. So I was the senior business representative for most of that strike and the primary contact person on the SAG-AFTRA interactive media agreement for the past six years until I moved out of the LA area. So I'm no longer with SAG-AFTRA, but I am now working with video game companies as a consultant to help demystify the SAG-AFTRA agreement and help promote productive conversations and relationships with the union. So in your consulting business, do you work with talent or with companies that are dealing with unions? More so with video game companies. They're my clients, but I do some presentations and informational seminars that are more actor-focused as a forum for them to get their general questions answered. So I noticed that before you were at SAG after you were in theater, correct? You were a costume designer and... That's right. Yeah. I studied costume design in college. I worked at theaters on and off for a couple of years up until I moved out to Los Angeles with the intention of staying in doing costuming and, and makeup, but more for film. But I joined a temp agency just to find something while I was getting to know Los Angeles. I'm originally from Boston. And SAG-AFTRA was, I think, the second job they sent me on. And I just ended up building great relationships with the rest of the team and taking to the work. And it was really steady. And it was 2008. The economy was really bad. The theater where I'd gotten most of my professional experience closed for a couple of years. So I decided to hang in there while doing theater on the side. And actually, now I'm back doing that. I am now the associate director of costumes for a nearby college is my semi-part-time job while I consult in the rest of my time. That's awesome. That's great that you get to continue to do that. Yeah, it's a really great balance of doing both of the things that I love and getting to do them in the way that works for me. So I'd love to start off just talking about what you did at SAG-AFTRA and what the day-to-day of your role was. So most of what I would do at SAG-AFTRA was signing producers, especially new producers, to the SAG-AFTRA signatory agreements. So when, in this case, a video game wants to hire union performers to act in in its video game, to do the voice acting, motion capture, stunts, SAG-AFTRA performers aren't permitted to work on anything that doesn't have an agreement with the union. The producers have to sign a collective bargaining agreement, which means that it was something that was bargained with a group of producers saying that they agree to abide by the minimum terms and conditions of the SAG-AFTRA agreement. And SAG-AFTRA performers are not allowed to work on anything that's not assigned to an agreement with the union. Most of what I would do is answer questions from producers about the signatory process or the process of signing to the agreement, 
get them set up and then be there to answer their questions, hold their hands through the process of recording their projects, getting the actors paid. And then if something goes wrong and someone doesn't get paid or someone has a bad time on set, I'm there to file claims against violations of the agreement and get the performers um, compensated. Now, we're, we're, we're very quickly going to get into the limits of my uh, knowledge or the beginnings of my ignorance. My impression is that when you work with a Hollywood studio or you work with a Hollywood production company, they're usually using almost all union talent. Is that right? And whether that's right or wrong, is that true with video game companies? Are they working with both union and non-union talent? So definitely when it comes to feature films, television, there's not a lot of stuff that is what the average consumer is watching that's not union, non-union. Right. If you've heard of the actors, they have a professional career, they're working in this industry, they're going to be members of SAG-AFTRA. Video games, it depends more. Because some video games, the voice acting is not a significant contribution to the game, or the union model just doesn't work for what the company is trying to do. Something that has a large performance aspect to it, Red Dead Redemption or The Last of Us, those games are very obviously union. Something like a casual game, like a match three, mm. or games with huge casts that only have a little bit of dialogue, like a lot of your JRPGs, so games that are um, popular in Korea and Japan, and then what we call localized into English, then translated to other languages, those tend to not be union. Right. Are there laws or agreements that, that dictate that, or is it just an informal way that it works out? U U.S. laws don't really require a, a particular project to go union. Once a producer is signed to a union bargaining agreement, anything that they made that would be covered by that agreement needs to be covered. Rockstar, they signed the union agreement, so all of their games are union, use union performers. So if it, it doesn't work, if it's not a good fit for a producer, a particular game producer, then probably all of their content is non-union. Something that might speak to what you're asking is that, as I was saying earlier, SAG after performers have a requirement that they are not to work on non-union productions. But if you have a union production and they want to hire someone who's non-union, that's a term that the union is not a closed shop. It's required to accept new members. So if you're hiring someone who is not in the union, but they're a professional actor, they've got a headshot and resume, they've done short films or plays, then they can join the union from doing that job. There's a special form for this called the Taft-Hartley, which is based on the Taft-Hartley Act, which is a rule in the government about how the unions are allowed to operate, that they have to accept new members. And every actor has to start somewhere. So they consider them to be professional actors. This just happens to be their first union job. A lot of the time in video games, especially with indie producers, maybe they think it'll be fun to be in the game themselves. Right. Or they just need someone quickly. Okay, let's grab the engineer. Let's have her come in and record a couple of lines or something like that, just quickly. Those are not people that are going to go on to have robust uh, professional act voice acting careers. The union can't tell you that you're not allowed to hire them. They can't tell you that you can't use that performer because they can't cost someone a job. But if that person doesn't fit the qualifications for the Taft-Hartley Act, um, then they can at least fine you. 
Okay. For, for using someone who wouldn't qualify under the provisions of that part of the agreement. So there's nuances, but in yeah. general, if it's a union production, it's a union mm -hmm. production. If it's a non-union production, it's a non-union production. And exactly. No one. Sorry, there's no there's no good way to talk about that part of it without getting super into the weeds. <laughs> no, I get it. Yeah. But but if you want to have Nolan North or Troy Baker, it's going to be a union production. And exactly. Exactly. Voices. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Um. And one thing I think that would be great to talk about is just what's the benefit to the talent of the union. There's really nothing about the union that doesn't benefit the talent. That's the purpose of a union. So for performers, the union makes sure that they are not getting less than the minimum terms that are bargained for in the agreement. And that includes salary, that includes their health insurance, that also includes safe and respectful treatments on set, making sure that your days are a certain length so that you're not driving home tired and having to be back to set in a couple of hours. Um, the, the union has a lot of other perks besides contract and salary protections. There's the SAG after foundation where performers who are experiencing financial hardship can get assistance. There's classes. The union has, um, voiceover facilities where people can take classes or record a demo or an audition. And of course and, health insurance is. Yeah. Better. And then the health insurance is a big one because just trying to get your own insurance on the general marketplace is expensive and difficult. <laughs> and so living in Los Angeles, as I do, as you did, mm -hmm. and especially working with the talent that you've worked with, we all know people who are in union talent, whether mm -hmm. it's in front of the camera, behind the camera, and they can be hired for if they're lucky, they get on a production that, you know, that on a series that goes multiple years and gets renewed, but they can also have long periods of not having work right in between jobs. Right. And so that's one of the big benefits from the union is being able to have some stability, at least when it comes to your healthcare, right? Exactly. Especially video game performers, your average game performer only works like one to three sessions when they're hired on a game. Someone who's a big lead in something with a lot of dialogue, you mentioned like Troy Baker and Nolan North for something like Uncharted, they probably worked dozens of sessions, but then most of the other actors that you hear in a video game are only working a couple of sessions. They're spending the rest of their week going to auditions, just trying to find another job. So yeah, it gives them the, the stability to just breach the gap from one job to the next. Wow. They're spending yeah. that much time going to going to auditions that's a that's yeah it's the voice actors i talk to paid right no you're not getting paid for that yeah. yeah and that's definitely something that's been a major theme of the recent just negotiations that have been going on both in theatrical and television and the current interactive negotiations is they're getting a lot of at-home tapes for auditions which some of which are requesting upwards of a dozen pages when the casting director knows if someone's right for it after within three pages <laughs> mm -hmm. so it takes a lot of time to record an audition when you're getting multiple auditions per day where you've got 12 pages of dialogue or something like that so they're trying to rein that a little bit but an interesting point about the insurance is that's actually something that benefits the employers as well is for the union to provide mm -hmm. insurance because if you're hiring someone just to work for you for a couple mm -hmm. of days you don't want to have an insurance policy to cover that person when they're just going to work for you for a little bit. Yeah. So, it, yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah. And anyone who's hired, had a small business knows how difficult that is. So instead, you pay a small percentage of the performer's salary to the union, and the union takes care of that for you. So you don't have to worry about that as part of your employer-employee relationship. Do you have any sense of how many or, or what percentage or even just a kind of a vague sense of how many people who are working actors also have some other job to sustain themselves where acting is not their entire source of income? The big number that everyone's been talking about is that like upwards of 80% of performers don't earn enough to qualify for health insurance, which I think right. is currently like 25 or 27,000 a year. So those performers that aren't earning their health insurance from acting, I'm sure they're all doing something else to make up the salary, whether it's they've got a great flexible job that let, lets them go to auditions or they're driving for DoorDash in between. How much would you have to work to earn that minimum? That's a good question. I haven't broken down the math. The average salary for, say, a feature film or the, the TV theatrical contract, I think it's just over a thousand right now. Um, so you're probably looking at 25 to 30 days. And this is principal specifically. If you're working background on stuff, you're just, you're making, I think, just under $200 a day. So that would break down differently. So for a principal actor, yeah, you've got to be working at least 25 to 30 days a year, which no one is getting booked for every single day of the week, unless they're regular on something. So you've got to book two or three jobs a month, um, which yeah, I think anyone's re feeling really lucky if they're booking that much. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, working a whole month a year, considering there's interruptions in there and auditions and all the rest of it, that's a material amount of time, right? It's not a, it's not a day here and there. To get into the current situation, if you could, and I know you have confidentialities that you can't violate, but just based on what we know publicly, could you describe the land with the Hollywood strikes? It's a strike that's specifically against AMPTP companies. I know that the list is probably in the SAG-AFTRA agreement. I'm not sure that it's available anywhere publicly, but it's the big companies that everyone's thinking of. Disney, Warner Brothers, NBC, Netflix, Amazon. There, there's some other probably less obvious ones in there as well. And I think the union's been on strike for just over a month or something like that mm -hmm. after joining the, the WGA's ongoing strike. And it wasn't a terribly long negotiation period. To contrast it with the interactive agreement, which has just sent out an, a request to the members to authorize them to call a strike, that contract expired in November. And I was still with the company at the time, and we started negotiations back in October. Mm -hmm. So we're about almost up to 11 months since that mm -hmm. negotiation started. And then SAG-AFTRA on the TV theatrical negotiations against the AMPTP, they started negotiating in June or July. Mm. And I think they negotiated for a couple of weeks. So obviously not being in the room for those negotiations, I can't say how things were going, but I think that they already had the model to look at from what the WGA was experiencing, that they knew that they wanted some of the same things and that it was an entrenched refusal and that they were not going to get the progress that they needed without making a big move and striking, <laughs> striking with all the earners hot <laughs> while the WG already had the momentum going. But obviously 
that's been going on for a while now between both of them, which honestly, from my my personal experience, like I said, I handled the uh, the 2016 to 2017 strike, which at the time was the longest strike in SAG-AFTRA's history. That strike went on for 11 months. And the fact that the, the WGA had their one sort of follow-up um, negotiation with the AMPTP, which was not productive. So I am nervous that they are finding other solutions right now to working with actors, that they're taking their work to Canada or to the UK, which I think that Canada, we have a lot of solidarity back and forth with that, with ACTRA, which is the Canadian Union. But British Equity in the UK, I guess there's a rule in their, I'm not sure if it's from British Equity or I'm not as familiar with their relationship with the UK government, but they're not allowed to engage in a sympathy strike. So if they have a project that's being struck by US performers, then they still have to work on it. And, you know, that they might be banking work in other ways, maybe doing animation up front that they can maybe with scratch performers that are non-union or with AI scratch voices. And then once they get there, that they'll record the union actors later once they have access to them again. Also, the last time that we had a writer strike, we got a lot of crappy movies and we got a lot of reality TV. Right. Yeah. So that's an interesting point because there are a lot of things that are excluded. Podcasts are mm-hmm. excluded. Professional wrestling is excluded. <laughs> so I'm a professional wrestling fan. And I think it's very interesting that... Man, those guys need to unionize. What I think <laughs> is interesting about it is that they're like actors. A lot of them turn into actors. Some of them are in the union. John Cena must be in the union, but he went back to WWE and he's performing for the next month in WWE. There are writers on these shows who are TV writers who go to work for WWE and they're owned by Endeavor, which is one of the biggest talent agencies (laughs) in town, but it's not considered the same thing. So it's carved out. Yeah, I guess because they consider themselves to be sports entertainment and not acting which i wonder i've never actually thought about this before i wonder if that has anything to do with the long ongoing assertion that everything that they're doing is real which like the hits are real but the the storylines are not (laughs) interesting Uh, yeah interesting what are other things that are excluded commercials okay television animation daytime television so soap operas game shows panel shows All of those are covered by a separate television agreement called the network code. So that is is negotiated separately from the TV theatrical agreement. Although the TV theatrical agreement, despite its name, also encompasses new media. So things that are produced for streaming, including Netflix and Amazon, despite being termed made for streaming rather than TV theatrical, are signed to that agreement. News is covered by SAG-AFTRA, but news is not a struck agreement. Music videos, the music department also covers sound recordings, including music albums, Broadway cast albums, radio plays, spoken comedy albums. Stand-ups can continue, even if they're in the union, they can continue to do stand-up. Late night, 
is considered union, right? Because all the late night hosts. Yeah, yeah, that's hosts. The, sort of the regular TV agreement covers late night, and in addition to your sort of t- typical primetime episodic television, which is interesting because they can't do their show, but they can do a podcast, but the podcast mm-hmm. is not written, so mm-hmm. they're not using a writer. I guess they can impromptu talk, but they can't. Right. They can't take a script and read off of it or read off a teleprompter. Yeah, exactly. And it, and, and is that the reason that the late night shows would be striking, or is Jimmy Fallon and talent like that considered a sag for a cat talent as well? It's, it's because they're because late night television is covered by the TV agreement. That's interesting, isn't it? That yeah, something like Jimmy Fallon's covered by the TV agreement because it's late night, so it's struck. Kelly Clarkson, same format daytime not struck <laughs> interesting yeah interesting. this is where you get into all the legalities and the negotiations of what's in and what's out and so there are two areas of concern that i've heard and maybe there's more but one is residuals and then the second around ai so to talk about the residuals issue what residuals do talent get today and in rough terms what are they looking for so the way residuals work is that the distributors gross receipts if you've got gate is distributing a film i say they have worldwide distribution they get the receipt that comes in from it, it generated this much revenue on itunes and this much revenue on on netflix and this much revenue on television reruns and dv sales each of those has a different percentage. It's usually about three to five percent. And just that three to five percent is split up amongst all of the actors in the project. So it's not three to five percent per person. That one little slice of the pie is then further divided up between all of the principal performers, principals in general means anyone who had a speaking line who are in the cast, depending on the, the big earners, how much money they made and how much time they spent, how many days they worked on the project. So the big lead is going to get the most. Someone who has worked one day, has one line, is just going to get tiny little amounts. Um, and right now, like I said, mo- most of them are about 3 to 5%. I don't remember the exact percentage for streaming off the top of my head. But as we've been seeing from actors sharing their residuals checks, they're making a couple of cents. The big thing is that Suits has really blown up in popularity mm-hmm. on streaming and the writers from that have made really two, three hundred dollars whereas Netflix is making how many thousands of dollars just for continuing to air a thing that they had no hand in actually making. Yeah, so it's like for the continued exploitation of our work, our names, our likenesses, that we should be getting enough to just bridge the gap between these jobs that are so hard for performers to book and the continued arguments of, oh, streaming such a new territory, this whole new media thing, we don't know where it's going to go. We know where it's gone. It's there now. It's huge. It's making so much money. The companies are making so much revenue up at the top and performers are having to leave the business. And yeah. writers, yeah, and you've got writers living in their cars. Wow. While, it, yeah, while while Netflix is, you know, raking in the big bucks and they're struggling to feed their families. And is the concern that the way that the studios are accounting for the three to five percent, in other words, are they 
is there a concern? Because I hear about transparency and yeah, is the concern that they're doing a Hollywood accounting and diluting the payouts, or is there a desire to get a greater aggregate payout than the three to five percent? I'm not involved in every conversation, but I think the bigger concern is that is the lack of transparency and that they're diluting how much they're making. But then also the fact that they're just still saying, oh, streaming just doesn't earn that much. Yes, it does. We all know that it does. (laughs) But yeah, the lack of transparency that someone else could have something that is doing really great. The writer has no way of, or director or the stars have no way of knowing. I'm only seeing this much money, but how many people are really watching this thing? Yeah, I have no doubt. I was at Disney for 14 years and at Universal for a while. And I have learned that Hollywood can make anything unprofitable. Yeah, Um, yeah. (laughs) And and a lot of my corporate career was fighting against Hollywood accounting Mm -hmm. uh, and allocations and things that I'd look at my P&L and go, where'd this cost come from? But I've also seen a little bit of how participations work from some of the things I've done in video games and working with participations at some of these companies. My impression is definitely that analytics in general, I think it's studios is just poor and compared to Silicon Valley and the level of analytics that we get, certainly streaming should be providing more data, right? But then how that gets managed downstream by participations and accounting and all this other stuff. I'm sure it's a little bit of a black box. I certainly am am sympathetic to that issue. In fact, one of the big things that I always, when I work with clients who are working with big media companies, is I always tell them that if you're going to have any rev share, profit participation or anything, just do it off of gross because to get to net, you're just going to wind up having a, a huge accounting conversation that's going to go on for forever and ever. I've certainly seen some some of that can work. So what the what the actors and the writers are asking for, it sounds like, is they're asking for uh, basically a fair ongoing participation on their content when it's monetized. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And part of the concern, too, is with content moving to streaming shows the fact that they're doing 12 episodes, not 24 or whatever. There's fewer episodes, fewer things go to long-term series the way they used to on network TV. You would have shows that would break out and be on air for 10 years. That's just far less common on streaming, right? Yeah. Yeah. People have a less guarantee of ongoing work than they used to because you'll see a lot more two or three seasons of eight to 12 episodes than you used to see like everything was going 22 to 24 episodes Mm -hmm. running five or six seasons to to get that syndication because everyone did well once a show got there and then you knew you were going to be back next season another big problem that is a major focus of the tv theatrical um strike right now is um exclusivity that you'll have something like a Netflix show that's maybe only doing eight to 12 episodes. And, but they want to hold their cast for the entire time between then and when they start shooting the next one. Mm. They don't want you to go take another eight to 12 job for Amazon because you might think you know when your schedule is, but what if something gets delayed? What if you need to do reshoots and you're not available and Netflix needs to get you back? So Netflix will just stay in your contracts. You have to sit there and wait for us until I call you. 
and you can't go take another job. They're not going to pay you any more for that, but they will stall out or in some cases completely tank your career because they want you available when they want you. So they pay you per episode, right? Is that right? Per episode, except for big leads have a series. The average actor on something, they're being paid per episode. And then you might have a series regular, I think is on specifically on every episode. So they're paid per season. There's another sort of like in-between tier. If you're watching, say, just your regular TV, like a Grey's Anatomy and someone gets a boyfriend, he's going to disappear for after about three or four episodes right. because they're not paying him for five episodes because then he's a series regular. Yeah. So everyone breaks up after three episodes. <laughs> so so you're saying that if the characters could stay together, that everyone could get paid more and it would be... <laughs> That's true, yeah. You're promoting... <laughs> but then you don't want to... But yeah, but they don't want to promote someone to series regular. So a lot of the time that's dictating artistic decisions. Got to break them up. Yep. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's find... weird once you see like the clocks working on the inside. So what I find interesting about that is I was a... VP, SVP, EVP, right, at these companies. I had, at various times, exclusivity and not. <laughs> and you definitely are compensated for that exclusivity, for what they call a contract. If you're an executive, you, a non-exclusive situation would be, you're still working for the company, but you can quit whenever you want. They can fire you whenever they want. If you have a contract as an executive, that might be two years, three years, and in that contract is your salary, your bonus, your equity, whatever you get. And unless they terminate you for cause, if they terminate you early, they have to pay you out for the difference. But what I find interesting is that it sounds like a lot of executives probably in their exclusive kind of contract deals have better protections than some of the talent. Yeah, you can always get another actor. You can replace the mountain a couple seasons into Game of Thrones. You can find another big dude. <laughs> so then the other uh, topic that I think everyone will be very interested in is just AI. And so mm -hmm. what would you say the union's view of AI is? Because this is the area where I think there's, even for me, probably the most lack of clarity slash confusion on where everyone's yeah. coming from. Yeah. Yeah, because I've been following a lot of conversations and... I think the, the main thing I hear is AI is is here and these tools exist and people are using them so you can't stop progress. And the union knows that. And I know that there's a lot of voice actors, especially where that's a huge concern for them. Is those are the conversations that I'm in most. I was in the voiceover department, not just working on video games, also working especially on dubbing, like foreign language dubbing. So the, the people that are maybe a little less technology conscious would really just love to say, no, no AI. Just we're just we're, we're not going to do that. But the union has said, we know it's here. We know that people want to use it and they're going to use it. We know we're not going to stop progress and we don't really want to. What we want to do is make sure that our members are fairly compensated for ongoing use of their assets, their face, their voice, and that they have some transparency, that you are not taking material for them that they recorded for a cute and fluffy video game and using that to make something violent and bloody if that's something that they're mm -hmm. not comfortable with. There's some uses of AI. One that we talked about that I thought was really interesting was on the most recent God of War game. I, I can't remember how to pronounce the young actor's um, name and I don't want to mess it up, but the young actor who played Atreus was going from a, an older boy to a teenager during the process of recording that game. His voice changed quite a lot. 
And they used AI to make his voice more consistent. So you don't have suddenly you're in one section of the game that he recorded a couple of months ago when his voice was higher. And now it's right next to another voice line that he recorded when his voice had dropped a little bit. And I think that's the very logical kind of use of vocal AI that everyone can get behind. And I'm certainly not going to begrudge anyone who wants to use AI for language prototyping. Or there was another game where people were mad that it had an AI character in it. It was High on Life by Squanch Games. I didn't play it myself because I was just tabbing forward through a couple of different people's gameplay footage on YouTube. I could not find it. So it clearly was not a significant contribution to the game. But yeah, but I think I think there's some people who would just be like, let's just not do that. It's just easiest if we don't do that. But other people are like, no, that's silly. And there are ways that it's very useful. We can have the same Darth Vader for forever now. And I'm sure that James Earl Jones made a deal that works well for him and for you know, his estate. As he said, they're free to continue using it under the deal that they have set for in perpetuity. And that's just what every other voice actor wants. It's okay, they're not using his voice for other random stuff. It's still Darth Vader in Star Wars things. And he is still getting paid. I haven't seen the deal, but I'm sure that he made a deal that is good and works for him. And that's just the same thing that other voice actors or other actors in general want. Yeah, it's. I think the positive is something that I realized when I was at Universal and we were working with Hollywood talent on a game we were doing a Fast and Furious game is I started realizing wow the once Hollywood actors start to realize the potential economic value that they can make by giving their name likeness and voice to a video game where they don't have to go on set they don't have to do hair and makeup there's a lot of things that they don't have to do it could be a nice a really what I started to realize is they're they're all going to want to do this at some point because just for what you can earn, assuming you're getting paid, it, it's very efficient, right? But that assumes that you're getting paid, right? Yeah. Rest assure you, Vin, Vin Diesel got paid in my game. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but he has agents and all kinds of people who... Exactly. You know... Yeah, a lot of voice actors, there there are a lot of that have agents, motion capture actors for a large point, don't have agents and are getting hired just by each other off of word of mouth and reputation. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and they're like and there's there's a lot of a lot of voice actors out there that, that don't have agents as well. Or maybe someone's not lucky enough to have a, a savvy agent that knows what's to look what to look for in a deal or what's a good agreement. Or do they just they just want to get their actor working and booked at any cost. Do you know, are the unions trying to restrict the use of AI in any way? Are are, are they trying to lobby for only live performances, live actors in certain situations, or not using AI in certain situations? Or are they simply saying if you use AI, the the actor must consent and they must be compensated. It's basically, yeah, if you want to use AI, we want you to come to us to negotiate a fair deal for the use. And we want the actor to be able to choose, yes, I want my voice to be used in this thing that you want to use it for. Actually, the attorney who is drafting all that legislation at SEG after, her name is Danielle Van Leer. Last mm. name is V-A-N space L-I-E-R. She is a very interesting and savvy person. If you Google her name, you'll be able to find lots of articles that she's written and talks that she has done on AI and deepfakes. 
So anyone who is interested in that technology and how the union is addressing it, I recommend looking her up. She's on Twitter and other, or X now, and other social media is having lots of interesting conversations about that. And she's the person who's actually writing this legislation. Interesting. So on video games, residuals are not as common in my experience. I haven't done as much AAA as you may have experience with, but my, at least in the things that I was involved in, big actors got residuals, but not every actor got residuals. It was a point of negotiation on most union projects are like a last of us, not to single out that title, but are people getting residuals? Is that standard or is it less standard than on television and film? The residuals on the interactive agreement is a whole different situation. That's interesting that you were seeing people get it at Disney and Universal. I wonder if maybe you were working on more branded, yeah, big ones, branded. Yeah. 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 So you might have some of those big names that are negotiating a percentage in, but it was not standard in the agreements until the conclusion of the 2017 strike. And it's a totally different model from what's in TV in theatrical. Take what I was saying before about a little percentage split up amongst the entire cast. That is gone. The companies that the union negotiated with said, nope, that's not how we monetize. That doesn't fit our model at all. We we can't possibly figure that out. So the model that the union sort of pitched and ended up going with, actually the union pitched something else that was, because we a lot of people are talking about the interim agreements. We had it in our own interim agreement during the strike. And then we ended up at something a little bit different when the strike was concluded. So it is a flat fee paid to each performer per session based on the number of sessions that they work in a game. It starts at $125 for the first session on top of your session fee, which is currently $9.56. And it goes up a little bit each time until it caps out at 10 sessions, which based on the example I gave before of some of our big name talent, Troy Baker and Nolan North, who are typically big names in big leads in games that have a lot of dialogue. I'm sure they're negotiating deals that are above scale where they are compensated above this rate for that much work. Your average, as I said before, voice actor is just working a couple of sessions on a game. So it scales a little bit with the amount of participation that a performer puts into it. So you just get a little bit if you only work one session. If you're working five, seven sessions, then your bonus is more, I guess we're not supposed to call it a bonus because that's a a different concept in the game development world. We call it additional compensation. Okay. So the additional compensation that the performers get will be more in like the 200s, 225, once you've been working five, six, seven sessions on a game. It is not applicable for very small games. If it has less than 10 sessions total for all the performers, not per performer. If you have six performers on a game and they all only work one session, then you don't have to pay the bonus. If you have six performers and they're all working two sessions, you're over 10 sessions, the bonus applies. So that was a model that only just arrived in the agreement as of 2017. So prior to that, there were no residuals at all for your average performer working on a game, which was a huge area of frustration for them. It made them feel really devalued by the gaming industry. And the thing that I would hear all the time from voice actors, they would call and say, worked for Warner Brothers on an episode of an animated series, and I made $200 more, and I'm getting residuals. 
but I went into Warner Brothers to record on one of their video games and suddenly right. my salary was $200 less and I'm not getting residuals, but I went in the booth and I worked the same amount of time just as hard. Why is this treated differently? And that's very fair. That's a very mm-hmm. fair question. Uh, but the model that's in place now is a, it sounds like it's based on the number of sessions. Yeah. It's not a percentage of revenue. Exactly. Got it. And is the union looking to revisit that in future negotiations mm-hmm. or is that model likely to? I, I think we worked so hard to get that model that no one thinks that this is the time to shake up the structure and start all over. I'm a little curious now whether the game companies have had a little time to live with it. Is Whittier rather just do the percentage? Does that seem easier now that you've been doing this for a couple of years? But I don't know. I'm not on that side of the conversation. But certainly the amounts aren't comparable to what performers would expect to get from residuals. But it was a start to get a foot in the door, to get everyone used to the concept and the model. And I'm sure that they would like to see those payments increasing to something that's more in line with the amount of revenue that games are generating and compared to the amount of residuals that they're seeing on other projects of a similar size and scope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very tricky and very interesting, particularly when you talk about companies like Warner uh, or Sony that a significant amount of their business, especially Sony owns PlayStation and has all of those studios like Naughty Dog or Insomniac. Those are owned studios by them. And they're in the film business and the television business and probably other, other associated businesses. They do game shows. Even the, the discontinuity for actors across those companies, I can understand was a concern. Yeah. Very interesting. And, With respect to AI, is there any difference in approach for video games or is it pretty much the same concept? They're looking at the same concept across all of their contracts right now. It's so interesting that the union contracts are negotiated typically on a three-year cycle and that it wasn't a concern three years ago, but suddenly it's here and it's everywhere and it's being readily implemented. So I don't think that anyone expects to have the kind of suggestions that you were having about we don't want it used in this case or we want it only applicable to this i don't think that there's an expectation that we're going to be able to get that granular with an agreement right now because it's already being readily used but who knows where it might go so i think the point now is just to get a framework that's in there that's if you want to use it let's have a conversation so we can negotiate something that works for this particular use and instance Yeah, the situation with games, I would imagine, is that, as you pointed out, with film and television and their ability to go into other markets to potentially sidestep some of these agreements, video games has the ability to do that on steroids and can even just switch to use AI voice now. So it's, but then on the flip side, what we're going to do in games already are doing is have, uh, NPCs, non-player characters that are RAIs and they are know what's going on in the story and in the world and are able to modify what they say and do in their performance based on gameplay and based on data. Mm-hmm. And that will be so dynamic that there's no way to put an actor in a booth and record all that. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that it forces this conversation around 
what the model is because you're probably bringing talent into a booth long enough to record enough to train a bot for some of these games, a game like GTA six, that's going to have 200 hours of content or something like that. I, I can't imagine that they're going to record all of that in the traditional way. And I have to imagine AI is going to come in there somewhere. It's very interesting on one side as an entrepreneur and a game maker. Of course, I worry about profitability and all the other stuff. On the other, I was a creative. I want people to be compensated fairly. I don't want to be constricted creatively. But if anything, I'm glad that this is all happening now because it just creates clarity for everyone. I still do work with some of the studios and AI was already starting to come up in conversations that we were having about games. And before the strike, the concern that we all had was, what is legal? Does it even know what they think about AI and the unions and all the various stakeholders that need to have form a point of view on it? And the feeling that like, how long is that going to take? And now that the strikes are actually happening, I think it's forcing a conversation to at least create clarity for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. We're coming up on time. I'd like to ask what you think the most common misconceptions around the unions or the strikes are, and how would you ask game makers and entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. to think about what's at stake here? I think the uh, one of the biggest misconception is that it's just rich people getting richer. So I want people to remember, there was a really great graphic that went around that was like that final lineup of um, everyone coming through the the portals at the end of Avengers Endgame. Mm-hmm. And since you've got Iron Man, Captain America, Black Panther, Black Widow, and people think that's who we're talking about. But then you look behind those people and they're flanked by dozens of other soldiers. And it's, those are the people that we're fighting for. So when you see a, an A-list actor and on the picket line and why are they picketing they're making tons of money it's because they're standing next to five or six other people that are on ebt between gigs and trying to figure out if they're going to have to like lose their apartment or move out of town so yeah it's not just about rich people getting richer they're doing fine and they're giving back to the rest of the community that they're trying to support so that's definitely a big misconception a big another misconception is interactive is not on strike yet They have just sent out an authorization asking the membership to give them the permission to call a strike if, you know, like I said before, they're coming up on 10 months of negotiations and they they feel like they can't move forward unless they have a stronger bargaining chip in their pocket, which is the ability to call a strike if they feel like the talks cannot be continued to be productive, but they are not at that point yet that they are calling a strike. And I feel like there was another question that you asked me that fell out of my head while I was thinking of those first two answers. <laughs> it was, how should entrepreneurs, a lot of game studios, I think the misconception sometimes on the other side is that all game makers are Activision and yeah. EA and these bigger multi-billion dollar companies. But a lot of game makers are like me, which are like small shops with a few employees and startups. How should, and we're, always fighting for survival and yeah. you know trying to make it to the next funding round and everything. What, how would, how should entrepreneurs such as myself think about this? Yes. Good. I'm glad that we got back to that question because there's a lot of people 
especially the performers on the interactive committee, are very committed to working with productions of that scale. They love indie games. They're interested in stuff that smaller developers are doing. They are actively working to create more options for game companies that don't have the financing and the resources that the Activisions and Take-Twos of the world do. And you can just talk to the union. You can call them up. You can tell them what you need. And also, as I'm a consultant, you can talk to me if you're not sure, and I can help you figure out how to have that conversation and figure out what might be possible. But you are not stuck with the Activision deal. They're working on creating more options. And if you have something special and different you want to do and you want to use talented and reliable actors or your favorite voice actors or your friend who you think is great and who happens to be in the union, there's ways to get it done and they will work with you on it. And so let's say that I wanted to do a deal with the union because I'm making a game that was going to have union talent. I would be, my deal is not Activision's deal or EA's deal. It's a deal that I do directly with the union. And while I'm sure that is largely a standard deal, you're saying there's some flexibility there to customize for the size of production and for what you're actually doing. Yeah, or for games that monetize in a different way, if you have an episodic model or if are based on a subscription or if it's event specific or something like that, people are coming up with weird new structures for games all the time. And they are, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, there's an, a contract that's negotiated every three years with those big companies, but you don't have to wait for them to tell you how you can make your game. You can go to the union and say, I'm doing something different. And this part of the agreement doesn't work with me. They might not be able to change everything that you need, but there's a lot of things that you can do. And if this, if those companies that are listed in the press release, Activision, EA, Disney, I'll not go through the whole list. I think there's 11 or 12 of them. But you, Chris Everly, you can go reach out to the union and make your own deal. The strike is not going to slow you down. Got it. Awesome. Thank you so much for the time. This has been totally enlightening. I'm sure my audience will really appreciate it. Thank you for taking us through that. And you're a consultant. You work with video game companies who are looking to have access to union talent. How should people get a hold of you if they want to uh, talk to you more? Um, My website is katiesikema.com, K-A-T-I-E-S-I-K-E-M-A.com. And my email is katie at katiesikema.com if you want to reach out to me directly. Thank you so much. And thank you to the audience. It's been a great episode of Plus One. Thank you. Thank you.